Greetings, brethren. For millennia, under Satan's rule, he has enslaved fellow human beings by the millions. Mankind has been tools of Satan in that way, of slaving mankind. Of course, as many of us know, all of us know, one of the most horrendous examples occurred in the past century when Nazi imprisoned Jews in forced labor camps as well as death camps were concentrated in those years. It has been estimated that over 6 million Jews lost their lives during this period. And we know at the close of World War II, the Allies were called on to liberate these enslaved, emaciated, diseased prisoners by the hundreds of thousands. Upon being liberated at long last, one prisoner stated, quote, We were born again. Our life started all over again. As you can imagine, Nick, a unique one-time event in life where they just really felt free and liberated. Well, as future sons of God, following the glorious return of Jesus Christ, you will be called upon as a part of the begotten and born family of of God. You will be called upon under the Creator's guidance to liberate the planet from the enslavement of the satanic system at that time. Literally, the entire world has been enslaved mentally. They've been enslaved physically for the past 6,000 years in many ways to a way of life that has led to misery upon misery, destruction upon destruction, to the point where Christ stated, that is, this mindset would lead to ultimately the complete destruction of all life on the planet unless God puts an end to it. That's found in Matthew 24, verse 22. And in the past, some may have assumed that when Jesus Christ returns, when he makes his appearance at that time, beginning of the kingdom of God, that the entire planet will suddenly recognize this powerful being in Jerusalem as the creator of the universe. Everyone quickly submits at that point, and peace breaks out all over the planet. Kind of like, kind of like the sound of music, if you've ever seen the sound of music. Flowers suddenly bloom, and the world is filled with the sound of music as people dance through the lush meadows of the earth, and everything's wonderful from that point forward. In reality, nothing could be further from the truth as far as what Christ will experience, what we will experience as part of the family of God at that time. The entire world is going to have to be forcefully liberated from the entrenched deception of this demonic world, the influence of the demonic world. In fact, the entire world, as we know, is going to reject Jesus Christ at his return, rejected him as the Messiah at his second coming. The entire world will reject him as well. Satan has deceived the entire world, Revelation 12:9, and literally he has. And you and I are called to be liberators of the planet from the direction and under the direction of Jesus Christ at that time. You know, it won't be like the liberator allies at the end of World War II, as that occurred historically, when they quickly finished off any remaining resistance, German resistance, and flung open the doors of the prisoner of war camps and the work camps 
the concentration camps. At Christ's return, the resistance will be very strong. And we will begin this long process of liberating humanity from its mental enslavement to a failed way of life that has never worked, a failed way of life. Today, I'd like to look at this process of liberation that we will all experience if we finish our training in this life. It'll be an exciting time, process of liberating the planet, the most challenging liberation humanity has ever seen. Title of the sermon is The Liberation of the Planet. Let's begin with a look at the world scene at Christ's return. In Revelation chapter 11, we'll turn there to Revelation 11 and verse 15. And then the seventh angel sounded, Revelation 11, verse 15. We're kind of catching up to speed here. Seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Christ firmly begins to establish his government in Jerusalem. Satan is soon bound at that time and removed, and all the nations welcome Christ back, right? Absolutely wrong, hardly. It doesn't occur. You can imagine the scene at that time when Jesus Christ returns with the saints to Jerusalem. As we know, the world's an armed camp, Revelation 19, 11. Revelation chapter 19 and, and verse 11. It states, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So Christ returns and actually will make war at that time. The world is in rebellion. They're deceived. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire, brilliant flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He had a name written that no one knew. Some, the religious sorts, the Christians of the world, will not recognize him. It will not be the appearance, for example, that they assume they would see, uh, portrayed, of course, as a semi-long-haired, effeminate, suffering Christ who really just wants people to believe on him. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, in white and clean, followed him on white horses. So those with him appear as armies, as powerful Spirit armies, rather than kind of the pasty, painted image of saints in the Middle Ages, you know, with halos and kind of Arabic weak smiles as well. The armies are clothed, it says, in fine linen, radiant white. We might say brilliant white. In verse 8, we could, we could read, speaking of the Bride of Christ, it says, the Bride of Christ is arrayed. In white linen, we see, we see this in verse eight. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It represents the righteousness, the, the character 
of Jesus Christ. The saints have been developing and trained in their life to live that way and to be able to teach others the same way of life. So it mentions the bride of Christ being arrayed in fine linen. And we notice in verse 14, we also notice that the armies in heaven, from heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's interesting. Followed Christ on white horses. Assuming these horses are literal spirit creatures, uh, very real, but spirit creatures, this will be an awesome sight. Can you imagine what that would look like? We know Jude 15 tells us that Christ will come with tens of thousands of his saints, and they will be with Christ, and we find that they will be on white horses. Years ago, I had the opportunity of riding a, a beautiful, black, powerful Morgan stallion, and uh, the stallion had kind of a, an attitude, but the saints will be riding the spirit spirit horses, the appearance of horses, and we find also that this will be a brilliant, lightning, quick display of the arrival of the Creator. And, of course, the saints with him and his armies. It won't be a casual cruise through the skies. Notice Luke 17, verse 24, and we see something here about that arrival, Luke 17 and verse 24. And it says, For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven and shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. It's going to have that same appearance. In years gone by, I've had the opportunity to see some of the really most brilliant white lightning strikes while growing up in southern Arizona for about 16 years and later on, some of the same in Arkansas, some of those powerful storms that can spawn tornadoes, but with lightning. Can you imagine the scene as you think about it with the speed of brilliant flashing lights or lightning flashes, that is, this very powerful being actually accompanied with a massive otherworldly army riding some type of creatures looking like horses, like white horses, incredible image, if you can picture it into your mind. Of course, we know the entire world will have been deceived at that time and by that time, prepared by Satan to reject the Creator and His appearance. The, the totality of the world has been deceived. Scripture says the nations are angry, Revelation eleven eighteen. They're not welcoming. They're not open to the arrival of this powerful being and those with Him. You might wonder why in the world would the, would the nations be angry? Well, the entire world will not recognize him as the true God of creation. They will see him as a threat. They will see him as a fake, a phony, a threat, depending on their perspective. Wrong assumptions will be rampant at that time due to the deception of Satan through the years. Most Protestants will assume they will have been raptured by that time, three and a half years in heaven, and will view Christ as either an imposter or an antichrist since they haven't been taken to heaven. They see this being who must be an imposter. They would have expected to be in heaven by now. Most Catholics will assume that he is an antichrist as well, and see will oppose 
Jesus Christ, the being in, in Jerusalem, will oppose the great false church and its teachings and the general church teaching that we have of the millennial rule of Christ is considered by the universal church as heretical and antichrist. And, of course, that's exactly what Christ establishes, his millennial rule. The Muslims will view this powerful being in Jerusalem also as antichrist, contrary to the Christ that they imagine. They believe the true Jesus Christ was a prophet, not the Son of God. To them, referring to Christ as the Son of God is blasphemy. They say there's only one. And also the God of Israel, as he claims to be, and is the God of Israel. That's, that's also blasphemy. They will not accept that. But their perception is that Jesus Christ, as a prophet, would return and help turn the world to Islam. And, of course, uh, that's not going to happen. And they're going to reject him outright. Even the president of Iran sometime back appeared before the U.N. and said exactly that. Jesus Christ will return and help turn the world to Islam. Well, the majority, then, of the rest of the world will view him very likely as some type of powerful alien life form that's here to take over the planet. Uh, so many are steeped in evolution. The assumption that we've evolved, that chaos and confusion and genetic mutations causes an improvement in species. The assumption is that since we must have evolved from somewhere, somehow, that there has to be more beings out there. After all, the universe is so big, potentially over a hundred billion galaxies, with each galaxy potentially of a hundred billion and more stars and potential planets. And Satan has really portrayed humanity and prepared humanity with a false religion of evolution. And it is a religion. It's not provable. There is dogma that's simply accepted on faith, which is the wrong kind of faith, blind faith in this case. And this almost universal acceptance has permeated the thinking of virtually all mankind, and of course society and science. And again, if we've involved from non-life by random chance, the thinking is, then surely there are other life forms out there somewhere in this galaxy or some other galaxy that has evolved at perhaps a higher level than we have. And because of this near-universal deception, both religious deception and evolutionary deception, Satan clearly has deceived the whole world in reality to reject the returning Jesus Christ. And this is a form of mental bondage, this deception that mankind must be liberated from. Well, finally, Satan will influence and use this powerful 200 million man army of Revelation 9:16 to turn on Jesus Christ and all the newborn sons of God at Christ's return. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, we'll read a little bit more. 16, beginning in verse 13. 16, 13. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So Satan is, is 
clearly leading the charge here. Unclean spirits coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and the false prophet there in the league here. For they are the spirits of demons, very powerful spirit beings, but it literally are demons. They've rejected the leadership of God and of Jesus Christ. And they perform signs, it says, signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world. It's universal to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So we see Satan is pulling out all stops here to, to reject and do ultimately to do battle with the returning <clears throat> Jesus Christ. Christ said in, in verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and, and they see his shame. We need to keep our garments. We need to be developing character in this life, developing the very mind through a degree of Jesus Christ and God the Father, that way of life, that desire to help humanity, to come out of that deception, to liberate them. And we must not walk naked. We must develop character now in this life. And, of course, that same character will be helping the world to transform the world into God's way of thinking, into blessings for obedience and a better way of life and a better future. Verse 16, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. And then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. So we see here at that time, Satan pulls out all stops with lying, demonic spirits. You know, on a rare occasion, many of the ministry, I know I have interacted with people influenced by demonic spirits, and these lying demons always trying to deceive. You know, as we face the future and as we face difficulties near years ahead of us, we know that according to Scripture, he who is within us, in other words, Jesus Christ living his life in us and also the power of God's Spirit, is stronger than he who is in the world. In this day and age, we have nothing to fear. Satan is powerful. The demonic spirit world is powerful. But they're nothing in comparison to the power of the great God and his ability to protect and intervene for us. Well, at that time, steeped in deception... Mankind rejects, once again, Jesus Christ, and this, in this case, it's at the second coming. And this time, though, unlike with his first coming, Christ appears with supreme power and authority, and he is ready to use it this time for mankind's own good, for the benefit of mankind, ultimately. Now, notice an interesting scripture that shows that God the Father's response to all this. The, the planet is an armed state armed camp. Uh, Satan has deceived the whole world, the leadership of the nations, and they attempt to take on the Creator. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 2. I think is a good illustration of what could happen, what will happen at that time. Psalm chapter 2, and we'll read various verses here, beginning in verse 1. Now think about that time period. Christ has returned with the saints, with with literal brothers of Christ now. And the question is asked, why do the nations rage? You can think about Armageddon and the armed camp and the rejection of Christ. And the people plot a vain thing. 
They're going to attempt to overthrow this powerful being in Jerusalem and those with him. And the kings of the earth set themselves. So they plan together. They've set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together. So they're communicating back and forth with this common threat that they view in Jerusalem in the Middle East. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces. We're not going to allow this powerful force, these beings, whatever they are, to take over the planet, to rule in our lives, and and cast away their cords from us, so the people of earth say. Verse 4, And he who sits in heaven shall laugh. You might say God laughs in derision. The arrogance of human beings. And the Lord shall hold them in derision. Verse 5, And he shall speak to them in his wrath. He will speak to them in wrath and power, but it ultimately will be for their good. God loves his children, and most of them eventually will come through the process, I'm sure, ultimately, in time, in God's time frame, to be a part of the very family of God. But they have lessons to learn. And distress, God shall distress them in his deep displeasure. A godless humanity rejecting God, Jesus Christ, the saints with him. Yet it... Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion in Jerusalem. I think in verse 7, a little bit of a flashback here, where the Father is reinforcing the historical Jesus Christ was then and is the powerful Son of God. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And, of course, that can be true for us in our life as we submit our will to the great God, we receive God's Spirit, we're begotten, we're trained to become literal brothers of Christ and sons of God. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for an inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. Of course, we know the meek will inherit the earth. And we, we approach God with that in mind as we live our life, even in difficult times today. And we know we potentially can inherit the earth. It goes on in verse 9, You shall break them, that is, the nations, with a rod of iron. The power of these nations will not even compare to the power of the great God. And you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. They'll shatter. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Take warning. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Honor the great God. And rejoice with trembling. Humble yourselves. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Smart thing to do. Lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. And when his wrath is kindled, but a little, just a little of the power of the great God, doesn't take much. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. And we want to do that today, to put our trust in the great God. And, of course, we're going to be teaching that lesson at the beginning of the millennium as well. Let's take it one step further in Zechariah then, as we see the transition, how difficult it will be initially, and disbelief that this is the creator of the universe. Zechariah 14, in verse 3, and it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. We've been reading about that, the nations of the earth who have conspired together. And he fights in the day of battle. 
And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. There'll be a powerful earthquake split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. The half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of the mountain towards the south. And then you shall flee through my mountain valley. From the mountain valley shall reach to Hazel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Notice this. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. What an incredible experience that will be, arriving with Jesus Christ at that moment. All the saints, all the sons of God, those who are begotten, who finished their training, who totally trusted the great God through even this difficult age before Christ's return. Verse 12, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem, and it goes on to say in verse 12 that their flesh will dissolve while they stand on their feet. It's going to be instantaneous. They're going to be in love and mercy, put out of their rebellion. An opportunity, of course, in second resurrection. But for now, that armed rebellion must be lovingly put down. And their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And again, instantaneous death while standing on their feet. What, what a quick end. They won't be rounded up and put in prison for years and years. They'll be instantly annihilated to be resurrected at the second resurrection. It's a very merciful way with dealing with this kind of deception and rebellion. And a loving God finishes with a rod of iron, finishes off the rebellion, at least at that moment in time. Well, from that point forward, the battle for the hearts and minds of a terribly deceived humanity will have only just begun. There's much more to accomplish. You and I, under the direction of Jesus Christ, his leadership, will be called upon to liberate the entire planet from Satan's sway. It won't be an easy job. We know that. There'll be, there'll be disbelief. There'll be rejection. There'll be a misunderstanding. Obviously, Satan has well-deceived humanity. But it will be a joyous effort to be a part of that, bringing true freedom to the planet. That's the purpose. That's the agenda. And we'll be part of that action if we finish our training and we prove loyal to God in this life. Let's look at Leviticus 25. I think this is an interesting introduction also to some of the transition Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 8. 25 verse 8. It says in verse 8, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. And then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee. A shofar, the sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day notice of atonement, at the time of Satan's removal, and you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. 
and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants, and it shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. We don't know for sure if this will be a jubilee year at the time of Christ's return. Uh, Very possibly it will be, it could be. We don't precisely know. But we do know that Jesus Christ will proclaim liberty at his arrival. Satan is removed and the demons and the rebellion is put down. And Christ will proclaim liberty throughout all the land. What an awesome blessing that will be for you and for me. That is, if we finish our training, at that time, we'll be under the leadership of Jesus Christ directly to be a part of that liberation effort to liberate the planet. And we will help liberate the earth from all the evils of Satan's way of life, from sadness and suffering and all the heartache that humanity has and is experiencing, from warfare, from famine and pestilence and sickness and disease and death. The Creator clearly stated that His mission on earth, uh, during His ministry on earth and beyond, was to proclaim liberty. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And Christ expressed His mission. Luke 4, verse 18. And we read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the good news, the coming kingdom of God to the poor, and our opportunity to be a part of, the, of God's family and kingdom. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, those who have despondency and those who are depressed and neurotic and broken down emotionally. Notice to proclaim liberty, Christ said, liberty to the captives the captives of the planet, and recovery of of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty, to set free those who are oppressed, and virtually all of humanity is in one way or another with all the baggage of their past. Verse 19, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I think it's hard to grasp the thrill and the excitement that we'll feel at that time to be a part of that effort as we begin the process of liberating the earth, of liberating the planet. And liberty will ring throughout the land to all the inhabitants. And it will be a tremendously exciting time to be a part of that liberation effort. It's hard to grasp, I think, how we'll feel at that moment in time as we begin that process. I'd like to, in the remainder of the time, to look at that process of liberation as we help liberate the planet from deception and misery and and the evils of Satan's way of extreme competition, kind of the false doctrine that if you just compete at a high enough level, you will survive and you will succeed. And, of course, we know extreme competition brings warfare and death and destruction among nations and among corporations and we might say even within families. Well, let's look at that process of liberation, and I'm going to list several points of how we will help liberate the planet. Number one, humanity will be liberated from the consequences of sin. 
the consequences of violating God's laws. What is liberty from God's perspective? How does God define it? Well, James chapter 1, verse 25. Let's turn there, James chapter 1 and verse 25. And we'll see what James had to say. James 1, verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, notice that the perfect law of liberty, of freedom, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, you know, just hearing the word, but a doer of this work, of this way of life, living this way of life, this one will be blessed in what he does, can have a successful life, a successful future. So notice James describes the law of God as the perfect law of liberty, that which brings true freedom. Well, some might say, well, how in the world could you describe a set of laws as the paths to liberty or true freedom? How could you describe it that way? I thought laws restrict you from doing what you want to do. Speed limit laws restrict you, from, keep you from traveling at whatever speed you want to, from whatever speed you desire. That's restrictive. Of course, that fits into Satan's definition of liberty, which I think is Lacking restriction from doing whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do. That's kind of what Satan wants us to think of when we think of liberty. And taking this thought to its logical conclusion, if everyone had total freedom to do whatever they wanted to do, whatever they thought to do, sooner or later, the freedom to murder and rape and steal, you know, this would lead to the loss of everyone's freedom. It would ultimately lead to total loss of any and all freedom. You know, being murdered, for example, is the ultimate restriction from doing what you want to do in this life, isn't it? So God's definition of liberty or freedom involves guidelines. It involves, yes, restrictions that keeps us from hurting ourselves and hurting others and allows us to have a better life without hurting ourselves and hurting others. And we're going to bring the world that perfect law of liberty. We're going to have a, what a fulfilling opportunity to help see others in time, begin to live that way, begin having a better life, a better future, better families, better marriages, as they begin to live that way and no longer suffer the consequences of the harm they bring to themselves and others. Well, the Ten Commandments can be thought of as God's statutes of liberty true statutes of liberty. They will be a beacon to the world at that time to show the path to true freedom, freedom from the effects of sin, of violating God's spiritual laws. Years ago, a few years ago, before the feast in New York, we, we took a little tour in New York City. We saw the Statue of Liberty. And we think about it and what that symbolizes, but of course we have to ask you know, does that truly represent freedom as we look across the land, this nation, and also nations around the world, those who perpetrate, those who perpetrate abortion by the millions, and we know same-sex marriage is proposed. Is that true freedom? Well, in reality, it's not. Surveys today show that only 13% of Americans believe that the Ten Commandments are binding. 
In other words, they're basically philosophies or suggestions. Notice how Paul's words about liberty, that is, freedom from harm, violating God's laws. Notice his words in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Galatians 5 and verse 1. And Paul says to the Galatians, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now think about that. Satan's way of life is a yoke of bondage. Well, people who are entangled in the yoke of bondage, let's say, for example, the drug addiction, for example, are not truly free. Their sin controls their life. Their misery has an outcome. People who are entangled in the yoke of bondage to pornography, as another example, are not truly free. They're not free at all. Their sin prevents them from having a truly healthy marriage in the present or a truly healthy marriage in the future. It prevents them from having a solid relationship with the great God. And people who are entangled in the yoke of bondage to lust of materialism, you know, if I could just have more, if I could just have more of what the world has, what probably is not, wouldn't be good for me, but if I could just have more, my life would be great or my life would be complete. Uh, individuals who think that way, they are never truly free. No matter how much they have or acquire, there is always a void in their life. And it is so true, as Solomon stated at, at the end of his contemplation, of all the things he experienced and the wealth and, let's say, the relationships and all the materialism that he could enjoy. He said, therefore, I hated life. In other words, in the end, it's kind of futile. It's not going to last. It's not going to go with us to the grave, so to speak. He said, I hated life. And it wasn't true freedom to Solomon at that time. Well, God's laws define for humanity the path, or I might say the blueprint for happiness, for human happiness. Notice Paul's statement concerning true freedom. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, in other words, according to the world, the lusts of the world, but according to the Spirit, being led by God's Spirit, His way of life, His mindset. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free, true freedom, from the law of sin and death. We can be liberated from the, from the transgressions of the world, from breaking those laws. And when we break God's laws, His spiritual laws, inevitably... There's a price to pay. They harm us. They harm others that we might love or surrounding neighbors. There's always a penalty. What an awesome sense of liberty that will be as we teach humans by the thousands or tens of thousands a path to a better life, a better future, strong relationships and marriages, and really even on average in time, on average, a higher standard of living, not struggling as human beings generally do today. They'll have to work, yes, but they'll be productive, enjoyable, productive work in the millennium. 
These individuals will no longer be chained to the spirit of lust and greed. I just have to have more. I'm just not happy. I need more for whatever I don't have or whatever my neighbor has. And also sometimes hate and selfish ambition. Empty, miserable lives never fulfilled, ultimately, futility. So in the first part of the liberation effort for humanity, the first part is liberating humans from the consequences of sin, liberating their thinking so they begin to understand the benefits of God's way of life, of a better future, of happiness and stability, and even the potential for eternal life, for we might even say eternal youth. And that's what it is to be a son of God. One does not age or degenerate. Eternal youth. Let's move on. A second aspect that is under Christ's guidance where we will help liberate humanity is liberating humanity from an economic system based on greed. And that's what it is. The economic system based on greed. I want mine above all else, above the benefits and needs of anyone else. In recent years, the United States and the European Union have gone through a real crisis of economics. And for several years, even in the United States, there had been a flood and has been a flood of money. And a few years ago, a flood of money, cheap money, low interest money, pouring into the home mortgage market, encouraging people to purchase homes who realistically could not afford the payments. And in truth, it was oversold. And these mortgages at the time that were sold, they were poor bets. They were bundled together and resold to foreigners, oftentimes risky loans, risky mortgages. And, of course, the lenders themselves enjoyed a higher standard of return and income as they sold these mortgages to unsuspecting investors, often from other countries. Of course, the whole house of cards was based on greed, and it began collapsing. And, of course, in the United States, we've had quantitative easing, one, two, three. That is, the government producing, I'll just say, or printing, actually electronic money, trying to pump up the economy, running up the national credit card to an extreme that will never pay off. We call that, some do, casino economics, you know, the, the gamble and the knowledge behind it all, that it's not going to pay off in the long run. And under the government of the family of God, there will be, for lack of a better term, maybe I could say capitalism, but not capitalism as we know it today. It'll be capitalism with a heart. We can say with some built-in forgiveness. And the system will be involving liberation of the impoverished, We'll see again, it will be a fresh start for humanity. At the beginning of the millennium, likely only about one-tenth of humanity will survive the end of Satan's system. We know that Jesus Christ stated that unless he would intervene, no flesh would be saved alive. There will be tremendous tracts of land that will be opened up, settlement across the continents. And when you add rain in due season, as we see in scriptures, there will be absolutely in time no shortage of good land, of productive land. 
my wife and I have the blessing of being uh, across the 13 western states in the United States. And there are vast tracts of land, basically empty. Uh, most of the population is on the coast and, and other cities. But these vast tracts of land, if there's rain in due season, and it'll open it up to settlement, to valuable, productive land, pr- production of food, for example, and better lifestyles at that time. Let's turn to Isaiah 30. Verse 23, Isaiah 30 and verse 23. Verse 23, it says, Then he will give the rain for your seed, with which you sow the ground, and bread of the increase of the earth, and it will be fat and plentiful. In other words, it will be enlarged. It will be, it will be accomplishing so much. It will be abundant. And in that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. And we see the beginning of an economic system based on the productivity of the land and the richness of the land. Yes, there will be other productivity as well, but it will be based on the productivity of the economies, that is, the productivity of the land, not on, well, casino economics or some wealthy individual's really selling derivatives, risky derivatives and investments. No, it'll be totally different. It'll be based on productivity and the richness of the land that's given rain in due season across all the continents of the earth. Let's turn also to Isaiah 35. Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 1. Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It's going to bloom. Deserts tend to have warmer climates, and when you add adequate rainfall, it's going to really burst and bloom, blossom as the rose. And it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. Tremendous blessings. Even with joy and singing... And the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord. They'll see the glory also of that way of life that the Creator will bring. The excellency of our God. Incredible. In time, there's going to be this kind of joy at the abundance of the planet and joy at the abundance also spiritually in a new way of life that we're going to be teaching, and in a right way we're going to be selling, meaning convincing humanity we're here to help, a better way of life, a better future, and we're in love going to guide and instruct. Well, of course, there will be cities, and it will not be only rural, but it will be on a much smaller scale. But the blighted, overcrowded, congested, polluted centers of misery and heartache and crime will be gone. Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 12. Isaiah 58 and verse 12. It says, From among you shall be built the old waste places, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, through the 
thousand years and, and in later, of course, the second resurrection. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the breach between God and mankind, the repairer of the breach as we teach God's ways, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And there will be peaceful streets. There will be cities. There will be, of course, the capital of the planet, Jerusalem, the restorer of streets to dwell in, and peace shall reign. Well, we can see quickly that economically, all humanity are going to have a fresh start. God's going to change the weather patterns. But one might ask, okay, but how about a little further into the millennium? What happens if a family makes some bad decisions, economic decisions? They lose some of their God-given inheritance as God redistributes the land among the inhabitants of the earth, maybe only starting with a tenth of humanity at the beginning of the millennium. What happens if they make some wrong decisions? I mean, they have made wrong decisions for years coming out of Satan's world. Will they be forever impoverished, as sometimes generations of families are today? Let's go back to Leviticus. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 8. Leviticus 25 and verse 8. We read this earlier, but it's a reminder, reminder of what will transpire. And you, and you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. And then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee, that shofar, to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. And you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty, freedom, even economic freedom, throughout all the land to all its inhabitants, and it shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession. There may be families that may lose their possession for a time if they make unwise decisions. And each of you shall return to his family. So at the end of every 50 years, on the Day of Atonement, the shofar will sound all across the earth, and human beings and families will return to their possessions. And some have had to work off their debts, and they'll return to their families. And it says the 50th year will be consecrated, return to the land and to one's family. Can you imagine a sense of relief in those occasions? When an impoverished family, maybe they had to sell their land because of, of decisions that weren't wise. And they're allowed to return to their land to the inheritance that they received from the Creator. In the year of Jubilee, every 50 years. And this is, again, for lack of a better term, it could be capitalism with a heart, with forgiveness, with opportunity or forgiveness. And verse 11 that 50th year shall be a jubilee to you, and in it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your intended vine. Verse 12, for it is the jubilee, it shall be a holy to you, and you shall eat its produce from the field. In the year of the jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. There shall no longer be any Land barren corporations gobbling up the vast tracts of land. Verse 14, 
And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's land, you shall not oppress one another. Major principle, we shall not economically oppress. The people of the earth shall be taught these principles. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor, and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. So if one has to give up their land, it will be prorated. It won't be artificially inflated. Number six, verse 16, according to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. So there's fairness here in every way. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops, of course, that remain until the year of Jubilee, verse 17. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another. Fundamental principle of God within the future family of God, of human beings who have that opportunity. But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. I am the eternal your God. Don't oppress each other. That will be the law of the land. Verse 18, so you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. There will no longer be invasion of other human beings or, for that matter, pests. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. So even among those who are temporarily impoverished and landless because of wrong decisions, difficult financial decisions, the year of Jubilee, they'll not be allowed to go hungry. They'll be able to glean and gather. Leviticus 25 and verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord, and you shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And what grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And verse 6, And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you. So for every seven years, there will be the, the land Sabbath. Land's not harvested, and any produce that grows on its own will also take care of those who are, we would say, temporarily impoverished. How about non-land Sabbath years? There are times, as we find Leviticus 19, throughout those years, the crops around the edges of the field are to be left for the poor. Leviticus 19 and, and verse 9. Leviticus chapter 19 in verse 9, <clears throat> and it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You're gonna, you should leave some remain. Verse 10, And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. And you shall leave them for the poor and the stranger, those who have not done well. I am the Lord your God, that is, the power and authority of the great God 
says that you shall leave the gleanings, those around the edges of the field and the leftovers for the poor and the stranger. Notice it, it still applies here that there will be work to do for those who are poor. They'll have to go glean. They'll have to go gather. It won't be handed to them on a silver platter with a check. In that case, they'll have to do a little bit of work. Still going to be true. No work, there'll be no eating. So the poor will have to produce that way. But what a drastic, liberating change from the way of society, the way it is today. No longer will there be landless inner city poverty, as we know, that is passed on from generation to generation. Cycle of poverty will be broken. What a tremendous uh, freedom, liberty ringing throughout the land. Let's go move on to another aspect of liberating the planet. Number three, Jesus Christ will liberate humanity from the shackles of sickness and disease. So can, can you imagine the impact that this will have on people as Jesus Christ initiates physical healing through his family, through us as well? Won't you be excited about being able to heal and to bring people that opportunity to have real health once again? I know every one of us have family members and friends who have experiences the ravages of injury and disease in this life. I know my own father was stricken with rheumatoid arthritis, an advanced case of it in his early 20s. And I can remember seeing him in such constant, at times, continuing pain that there were times when he could hardly, on his own, turn over in bed. In those days, powerful steroid therapy drugs were used to relieve the inflammation. He was on those drugs for 10 long years. And he died at the age of 49 from all the side effects of drug therapy listed in the, in the PDR, in the physician's drug reference. You know, there are thousands of individuals who are alive today just waiting to be liberated from a lifetime of pain and inflammation and, and agony as well. And we will liberate humanity from sickness and disease of all kinds. Isaiah 35, let's look at Isaiah 35 and verse 5. speaks of some more of that liberation process where we gain their confidence, their trust. Isaiah 35 and verse 5. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Can you imagine the effect of healing a blind human being? Maybe seeing for the first time in their life, maybe not but who's been blind for years, maybe even from birth. Do you think you would have their respect and their confidence at that moment? Absolutely. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped as people can no longer, let's say, exist in darkness sound-wise. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And then the lame shall leap like a deer, Think about the exhilaration this would, this would produce to heal someone who's lame or paralyzed, maybe a quadriplegic paralyzed totally from the neck down. Do you think that individual would leap like a deer, as the Scripture says? You bet. And you would have that blessing, that excitement of seeing that happen and helping someone, the fulfillment of helping someone else. A while back I read a true story 
of a very young and athletic teenager, Ron Hagee, who seemed to have everything going for him at the time, graduated from high school, had a supportive family, a very strong family apparently, an athletic college scholarship, a great personality, tremendous abilities, promising future, you know, anything I suppose a teen might want at that time. But the day before his 18th birthday, everything drastically changed. He hit his head. He was visiting a cousin in Southern California, uh, trying to body surf in the waves. And he hit his head on a sandbar while diving headfirst into the waves of the ocean. And sadly, he broke his neck. He broke his neck, spending, of course, being relegated, spending the rest of his life as a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. Think about the impact on an 18-year-old. And through the years, he valiantly struggled to make something of his life. Some people attempt to, some people give up. And while he was in prison, really, in a non-responsive body, virtually everything has had to be done for him throughout his life from 18 on. Can't shave, can't feed himself, can't brush his teeth, he can't take care of his normal hygiene duties. And year by year, he has struggled to avoid hopeless despair. And it's been a struggle, as you can imagine. But he's even gone to the point of writing an inspiring life story titled, Never Give Up. And yes, he has shown tremendous courage. Many people, not all people do, but he has. And he waits for liberation. He's still paralyzed. He waits for liberation. There are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of individuals with paralysis who struggle through their life, hoping someday to be set free from their physical prison, which is their own body. They wait for this. They hope for this kind of liberation by medical science. Of course, we know that's ultimately not the answer. Well, back to verse 6. It mentions, And the tongue of the dumb shall sing. And you think about verbal fluency, there'll be a torrent of words of appreciation. And we read in, in other scripture, For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Eternal. I will heal you of your wounds. That's Jeremiah 30, verse 17. Well, what a blessing it will be to quickly heal, to have that ability to heal others of their infirmities, those who are sick, those who are diseased, as well as the, the many who are injured in warfare. And, of course, we'll teach them from that point forth how to live a better life, a, a physical, healthy life. Jesus Christ will reveal so much of that to us so we can more profoundly help change people in society so they can naturally grow in their life to be healthy. Well, in the millennium, we're going to openly heal, and it will then be time as, we, as we're Enabled, what a blessing that will be, to heal other human beings. And we'll be able in time to liberate all humanity. And as we heal them physically in so many other ways, we're going to point them to Jesus Christ himself. So he's not only the creator of the entire universe, but he's also the savior of humanity. We know by his stripes we are healed. 1 Peter 2.24 don't you really look forward to being a liberator of humanity to liberate them fully from the satanic system 
from misery, from emptiness, from heartache and suffering, and evil of every kind, so they can have so much more, an abundant life, a good life, a life as they look forward to the very family of God in time. We'll have that supreme joy. It'll be part of our future of liberating humanity from Satan's failed way of life. So let's be thankful for that unspeakable privilege that we can think about of being a part of the firstborn family of God, called and chosen and faithful as kings and priests under the rule of Jesus Christ, the true liberator of humanity. Godspeed that day.